Have you ever known someone who was a criminal mastermind? Federal authorities described Mike Savage as a criminal mastermind, capable of bending people to his will. He was that and much more. His criminal empire was the subject of a five-year federal investigation that culminated in his indictment on 101 criminal charges that ultimately put him in prison for 15 years, 2 months, and 28 days. From Mike's perspective, he would lose everything in his life, including his beloved wife who had no idea that Mike was a criminal. Stay tuned. This is one show you don't want to miss. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Grant. Crime was Mike Savage's second life, one that his wife and his family knew nothing about until federal agents raided their home. I have thought about this scenario a few times since reading uh, Mike Savage's story, and I can't imagine as a wife what that must have been like when they came in and she had no idea what was going on. The fear, the anxiety, the questioning, all those emotions, negative emotions that would have would have just obviously hit her in the face. Do I trust him? Everything everything that she probably went through and so I want Mike is also going to share not just what happened with him but also later in this in this show what happened with his wife and his family and what they had to endure so this is an exciting interview I can't wait to hear what Mike is going to share thank you for joining us today Mike thank you and thank you for for inviting me it's it's always a pleasure to share the stories of what God did uh, because it helps us know maybe what he's doing now. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Okay, so let's start with your pre-prison days. How did this happen? And bring us up to when it did, you know, when, when they were raided your home and what happened from there as well. I was a broadcaster. That's that's what I started out, left college in order to become a broadcaster. And the broadcasting to me came easy. Uh, I enjoyed uh, doing radio, I enjoyed doing television, and and back in the early '80s, I was offered an opportunity to do a talk show in California, and so I took it instantly because I loved talking, I loved interviewing people. It was great. Uh, it was it was not very profitable at that time. Talk radio was just kind of starting when I when I got into it, but it wasn't very profitable. But I I had a lot of guests on that I would interview celebrities, I would interview local people, things that were interesting to me. 
I would I would invite them on and and then people liked when I did open lines. They could call and we could argue and do all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and it was to me it was fun. And I, I just had a great time. And then I had this guest on who took a particular interest in me and said, you know, you could make a lot more money uh, doing something else. And I said, yeah, what? And it had to do with uh, money laundering. Now, oh, there wasn't goodness. the way it was. It wasn't the way it was described. Okay, it wasn't said we're going to make you a money launderer. <laughs> they said, no, there's there's these opportunities. And so I went talked to some folks. I said, yeah, here's how you do it. This is what's going on. And I said, how much can I make? They gave me a figure, and I was all in. So it was about greed. I measured my success by how much money I made. And I was going to make a lot more money doing that than I was in broadcasting. So I left broadcasting. And over the course of five years, ran a money laundering operation uh, that had about 1,200 people in it. Uh, And of those 1,200 people, all of them were subservient to me. I told them what to do, how to work these things. I would travel certain places, do things. And I made a lot of money. After five years uh, and, and being married to, to my wife, there was a knock on the door one July morning and federal agents raided the house. Uh, FBI, IRS, Postal Inspection Service, uh, Organized Crime Task Force, uh, and of course all the local PDs and sheriffs and all that sort of raided the house. Took my wife, who was about six months pregnant at the time, away from the house. And the federal agent said, she's not coming back to you answer our questions. And if I had just answered the questions truthfully, while I probably would have gone to prison a lot sooner, things would have gone a lot smoother. But I lied and became this tough guy that wasn't going to answer any questions. You know, I, I'm not doing anything wrong. You know, you know the usual routine. You, everybody's seen it on TV. Tough guy, right? And scared to death on the inside. Scared to death. Of, of what was going on, worried about my wife, all of that sort of thing. And she had no idea of, of what was going on. They just took her away. They didn't give her any information um, to hear her side of the story. They were just saying, they're, we're not really sure. Everything's going to be fine. Trying to reassure her uh, so she wouldn't you know, miscarry. And of she course. didn't miscarry. But she came back about four and a half, five hours later after they had taken all the stuff from the house. Uh, they brought her back, and uh, that was her first knowledge that I was a, a criminal. Were you there when they brought her back? Oh yes, they never, they didn't take me into custody. Okay, I wasn't okay. indicted till about a year and a half later. Okay, so did she have lots of questions? No, curiously, interesting. She was more concerned about me and my well-being. Wow. Than anything else, she just wanted to make sure that I was okay. That was it. And you had little kids at this time as well, right? Couple of couple a couple of children, right? They were out at the time. They were gone. Uh, one eight, and the other one was six and a half, almost seven, when that occurred. So yeah, they were they were they eventually came back, but it was it was just a nightmare of my past catching up to me, and what had been secret that afternoon came out in all the mm. papers. Oh, my word. (laughs) Every day thereafter, it seemed like for months, I was front page on these local papers. And I just dreaded going out to pick up the paper to see what they were going to be saying about me. Because some of it was true, Uh but a lot of it was Uh speculation and wasn't true. All right. Yeah. So continue. Continue the story. Right. Well, uh, I think 
over the period of a year and a half, okay, maybe this thing's going to go away because there wasn't anything else that came forward except for the government came forward with what they called civil forfeiture. And that civil forfeiture says that anything that is uh, purchased with illegally derived proceeds can be forfeit to the federal government. And so they took our house, they took our cars, uh, took everything uh-huh. that we owned that was tangible and and put it up for auction. They auctioned off our house, cars, motorcycle, uh, everything. And that, of course, was big page also, right? Front page news. So the, the, the whole thing was, okay, I was more concerned about how are we going to live? Because how am I going to get a job being under federal indictment? Cynthia's having trouble getting a job. And, and all the people, we lived in a smaller community. Everybody knew us. And so going to the grocery store or, you know, trying to find a car that you could afford to, to, to buy to, to, with no money and getting attorneys and all this other stuff, the year and a half was more about surviving and thinking that maybe this case is going to go away because I didn't get indicted. Nothing. And then in September, year and a half plus later, they come out with a five-count criminal indictment saying that I had lied on our home loan. And everything was in my name. And, and, and what? You're lying on it. What you think I'm Al Capone? You, you couldn't get him on the, <laughs> the criminal charges, so you put him on tax? I mean, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. But they, they put me in jail and then come out with a superseding indictment of 101 counts of international money laundering, uh, regular money laundering, which was in the U.S., wire fraud, mail fraud, all of these other charges. And I'm, you know, they're telling me you face life imprisonment, you know, which was, it, it, you don't. <laughs> they, have a, they have these sentencing guidelines, which you don't. But I mean, that's what I thought at the time. And I'm locked up in county jail in San Francisco and wondering how long is it going to take for Cynthia to come to her senses and leave me? And finally, they let me out on, on bail, on electronic monitoring to a federal halfway house in one of the worst places possible in San Francisco, because they don't put halfway houses in, in of course. posh neighborhoods, oh. right? <laughs> Where my family can come visit me, but I don't want them getting robbed or Eventually, they get me out of the halfway house. I'm home on, on house arrest. Cynthia's working part-time as best she can. And so for another year, nothing happens other than we prepare for trial. And I had no money to pay for an attorney. The attorney that I had initially when the raid occurred, he wants to be paid. I can't pay him. So I end up with a public defender with, you know, goodness knows yes, how many other yes, cases. yes. And we go to trial because I'm not going to take a bargain. I'm not going to tell on other people, you know, tough guy, right? I, I didn't tell on anybody. Wasn't going to We go to trial and it lasts three months. And the, the most of the three months is the government day after day going through this 101 counts, you know, bringing in witnesses and experts and all this. And my public defender is like, you know, I got like two witnesses, Mike, that I can call, but <laughs> you're going to have to testify. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So we talk and I testify and I basically took responsibility for it. I had three other co-defendants and I said, yeah, they didn't know anything about it. I lied to them. So if you're going to put this on me, put this on me. But that's, that's the way it is. And the prosecutor just <laughs> had a fit 
because they'd spent five years yes. investigating all this. And here I've just, well, the jury believed me and convicted me and, and acquitted them. And I was immediately taken back into custody and awaited for, I think it was four months to be sentenced while they did pre-sentence investigations and reports. And again, wondering how soon is Cynthia going to leave me? And she keeps reassuring me that she's not, and I'm not believing her. And eventually I get sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison of which I did 15 years, two months and 28 days. This after the sentencing, a few weeks later, I'm transferred to the federal prison that I'm going to do time at in, in Lompoc, California. And then the sentence begins, go through appeals process, appeals denied. Supreme Court's not going to hear it. None of this stuff. And it sets in that, okay, now's when she's going to go because there's no hope left. And she refused to go. She would insist she wasn't going to see anyone, wasn't going to nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm not believing her. But to skip to the end of the story, she stayed. We're still together today. There's been no problems like that. And, and it was a remarkable story of her uh, and what absolutely. God did in our lives yeah. in saving me in a federal prison and saving her when she came to visit me in a, in a, in a federal prison visiting lobby. That's where she got saved. So, I mean, that's, that's God's hand, right? That's the only, only God can do that. But it was the, the trip along the way to getting saved and then the trip along the way after getting saved that is the real remarkable story beyond just Cynthia staying with me. That's the story is, is God's faithfulness in his hand, even when I was rebellious and wasn't, didn't want to hear anything about God. He was still faithful through all of this. So I have two questions. Uh, the first one is you did not come from a family of criminals. No, no. No, <laughs> no I know. I'm making that Far a statement. That's not a question. That's a statement. Right. As do most of our listeners do not come from a family of criminals or and and so this was foreign territory. This was out of your comfort zone, both for yourself, even though you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing, and definitely for your wife and your extended family. So my question at this point is how did you cope and how did she cope? What coping skills did you have? <laughs> at the beginning, zero, um, because I was unsaved and I, I acted it in prison the first two years. I acted unsaved because I was unsaved. I was making illegal uh, liquor, they call it Pruno, uh, and selling that. I was the the bookie to handle all the the bets. And I was I was okay. If I'm in this, I'm in it. Okay, you're gonna put me around other criminals. That I'm gonna be a criminal, and that was my coping was keeping busy doing stuff like that, um, avoiding fights, avoiding riots when necessary. And if, if if I was caught up in the middle of one, trying to end it quickly and get out of the way, uh, I spent some time in solitary confinement, just under investigation most of the time. Never got never got in trouble. Never was written up but I seemed to always be under investigation, it seemed like. And so I'd end up doing 30 days in solitary or uh, 90 days, that type of thing. But it was odd because that happened after I was saved. <laughs> the whole beforehand, I kept my head down. There was no problems. But once I got saved and, and started working at the chapel, it was one investigation after another 
until I got transferred to the prison in Taft, California, and still ended up doing a little bit of time in the hole there, but under investigation again, but because of working, get in the chaplain's office. So that was, I was just constantly in, in turmoil. Cynthia, for her, her coping skills revolved around the fact that she was raising a baby and two other children. Um, so she really didn't have time to fret and worry like that. She also, had, she also had to get a job, didn't she? Yeah, she had to get a job. And back then, as a, as a registered nurse in California, they weren't hiring them very often. So she worked at several different doctor's offices just to make ends meet. And so she didn't suddenly return to, to you know, working in a hospital or so. They wanted less than RNs at that time because they're less expensive. And God, through her doing that, eventually led her into a different job called its case management and then has her now in, in being a director for several hospitals. But none of that would have happened if God hadn't intervened. Her coping skills revolved around survival. That was the deal. And, and she's a remarkable woman. I get that. But I've also watched how God's groomed her. She doesn't worry, fret, stress, none of that stuff. And that's because of what we've been through and how God trained her. To, I'll give you a story. She said at one point, finances were so tight that she, when she went to the grocery store, she would ask God, should I get this off of the counter and put it in the basket about everything from ketchup to peanut butter? She would ask. And if he said no, then she didn't, she didn't get it. She'd get something else until what he directed to do. That's how her skills in, in life and learning to work with the Lord uh, change the way she, she looks at things. And, and to me, that's a remarkable story. I mean, praying over whether or not you should get that bottle of ketchup. I mean, th think about that, Carol. How many people do that? But this lady does the same thing to, to, this, to this day. So it's just, it, it, we could laugh about it, but it's, it's just a wonderful example of what God did in her life. She learned how to become dependent on him. Yeah, instead of me. Exactly. Exactly, which is a, a, a key point in a situation like this, and I appreciate you sharing that. Now, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I'm going to ask you about the day your world changed, the day everything changed in prison. So hold on, we're going to be right back. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Well, my goodness, I think you have our audience's attention. That was quite the story. And, and trying to relate, it's almost impossible for the average person. But nonetheless, we all love stories. And I thank you for sharing your story today. So let's go now to what happened in prison you shared a little bit of that and also what happened specifically that turned your life around. Right. And I look, 
I had no intention of, of doing anything other than what I was doing the entire time I was in prison. Whatever the hustle was, that was, that was what I was going to do. And the day that it really got me is there's a thing called a call out in prison and you check it every day, see if you have to go to medical or to records or something like that. It's also where they have job changes. I was working in the kitchen, so I had access to yeast and all the things to make alcohol. And uh, all of a sudden one day, well, yeah, I mean, sorry, <laughs> I, let me say, I don't make it today. All right. But okay, at that time, I was, I was pretty good at it, but you know, it's not at any rate. The, the, the point is I got a job change to the chapel. And I'm thinking, whose idea was this? And so I get I get a job change, go to the chapel, I meet the chaplain, very nice guy, really terrific guy. And I said, uh, I think there's been a mistake. I work in the kitchen, and I'm suddenly here. Uh, I think you need to change my job back. He said, No, no, no. Let me explain to you, Mike. I've read your jacket, and a jacket in prison, so that everybody we're on the same road here. A jacket in prison is your file. And it tells everything about you from it talks about what you were before you came to prison, what, what you went through, any fights you were in. Um, you, you said, you know, I saw you had a little violence on your, your jacket because you got in a fight in county jail. So the guy had really read it. But he said what really impressed me was that you're really organized and good at organizing things. He said, that's what struck me about you. And I need a new chapel clerk. And I think you're exactly the person that I need. <laughs> And I used I used a profanity at that point, and and to start with, followed by no, I am not. I said I don't want to be around religious people; they're all phonies. I don't trust them. I don't want to be around, and I don't know anything about religion. He says, "Well, you don't have to. You just have to organize these groups so that they have their meeting times and they have all the materials that they need and all that." I said, and again, I swore and said no. And he he's unfazed by this. I figured this man of God, if I swear, he'll leave me alone. Right. But he didn't. He insisted. And he sat me down. He said, OK, here's the groups. And there's like 13 different groups. There's not just like Protestants and Catholics. Well, now we've got Wiccans, Santeria, Nation of Islam, Moore Science Temple of America, Jehovah Witness, all these different groups. Muslims, Sunni, Shia. I, I, I don't know anything about these groups. I don't care about these groups. But he says, no, I want you to organize this. And he says, just just do your best. Obviously, you were very good at what you were doing, organized and all that stuff with your crimes. You, I, I said, if I was that organized, I wouldn't get caught. And he said, no, just keep going. So there's nothing I could do to shake this guy. Nothing. So I said, okay. So I actually did put some effort into it. Got things organized. Uh, everybody was kind of amazed that we had time and all. And it was, it was like, okay, here's my special crime skill. Now I'm going to organize religions, right? And that's my job. That was my job for as long as I was there. But the one that I hated the most was on Sunday evenings. I had to wait until the last Protestant service was over and then clean up afterwards. And then I could go back to my cell. I hated that because every week it was the same thing. Different volunteers would come in, same old. Christianese and all the stuff and these guys, people getting saved, right? Well, it was the same people getting saved every week. You know, if it was a different person, they'd go up to make a feel. I got saved. Well, you got saved last week, man. What, what is it with you? But it was okay. All right, it's a show. I get it. This is a show. And I had to sit in the back waiting for everybody to get this 
thing, whatever this thing was that they were getting with this Protestant Christianity. And look, some of the people that came were kind of funny. I mean, they did have funny ways of saying stuff, but always at the end, here comes a sinner's prayer, and as you know, usual, suspects go up to get saved, <laughs> whatever that meant. So I'm sitting back there one night, just about as dark, dark, dark mood as you can imagine. I'm sure Cynthia's going to leave me. My wife's going to leave me finally. I know she's not going to wait for me for 15 years. She's not going to wait for me. For not going to happen. What is all this stuff about? I don't get it. Why do I have to be here? Why do I have to? There's all these people. Just, just you know, fussing. It, 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 nothing. Because I didn't believe in anything. I'm just fussing. But in my mind, I'm dark. I'm thinking, I need to hit somebody. I just want to punch them. Because I'm not going to punch a wall because you get in trouble for that. So I'm waiting for this guy to finish. And he goes into this sinner's prayer. And I say, hey, look, if you're, if you're even out there, what about me? What about me? You know, here I am. I'm doing all this stuff at the chapel. What about me? You know, my wife's going to leave. You're just prolonging the agony. If you're even out there and you're in charge of stuff, you're the one that's causing me all this agony and stress about losing my wife. You know that as well as I do. And I, I just was furious. I put my head down. And Carol, this is the only way I can explain what happened. Suddenly, what these people had been railing at every Sunday night, and railing about every Sunday night, began to make sense to me. Hmm. <laughs> it's not like I figured anything out. There was this firing of a synapse in my brain, I guess, where I suddenly got it. And I started crying. And I mean, crying, crying. And I keep my head down because crying is not something you want to be seen doing in prison. <laughs> I don't think so. But I'm crying like a baby. Snot coming down my nose, all that stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Now I'm going to have to tell them it's allergies or something, right? Okay, if somebody says anything. No one notices anything. I don't go up. I don't move. I just stay right there till everybody's gone. Then I wipe my hands onto my, my khaki pants. I clean up the chapel and I go right back to my cell. And I fall asleep. And I don't say anything to anybody for a couple of weeks. Without this newfound religious mic. None of that. So I go to the chaplain. I said, hey, listen. <laughs> this is weird, but, and I don't even know what it means. But I think I got saved. I believe all the stuff that this guy was preaching. I said, I, I believe that stuff. He goes, that's good. I've been waiting for this. Really? Yeah, really. <laughs> and so I said, I don't know what to do next. What should I do next? I said, How, guide me, show me something. He said, start reading your Bible. I said, ah, all right. So I, <laughs> I'm kind of a literalist. When he said, read the Bible, I'm thinking, go Genesis to Revelation. You know, some people say, oh, no, you should read this, that, or the other. I don't know. I just started reading. And some stuff I understood, some I didn't. Some I would really question about. I mean, God, why are you whacking all these people? Why are you killing them? I don't get it, but, you know, uh, all right, let's move on. And finally, I said, I, I go back to him. I said, all right, so I've read it all the way through. What am I supposed to do now? And he says, what do you feel like? He says, what do you feel like doing? He says, maybe you ought to pray more. I said, I do pray. He says, when do you pray? 
I said, I pray over my food now. He says, okay, when else do you pray? I said, what are you, where's the rules? What, what am I supposed to be doing here? He won't give me a straight answer. He's making me struggle for this to see if I'm really wanting to do it that much or not. And so I start praying, but I picked up this book on prayer called uh, the practice of his presence by brother Lawrence, which ruined any hope of anybody ever having me fall into a line with the way they pray. Okay. Brother Lawrence taught that you just talk to God and he'll talk back. Just keep it, just do it. So I'd be out walking the track or lifting weights or doing stuff. And I'd be talking to God <laughs> just sometimes yeah. out loud, you know? And yeah, I could feel his presence. I have to around me and I'd ask for guidance and he'd kind of show it to me, you know, but in the back of my mind, the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is pretty dramatic change. He must be getting me ready to be released from prison soon. And that became my motivation to get that from God. Oh. That became my motivation. He must be. He must be. Talking to Cynthia, she has the same religious experience in, in Lompoc at the, in the visiting room with me. That's where it happened to her. And yeah, he must be ready to get you. He's going to get you out of prison early. Yeah, so I'm going to do all this stuff. I go back to the chapel. What should I do? He says, I think you should go to seminary. Maybe you're called to be a pastor. I had no idea what a pastor was. I thought they probably preached on Sunday, maybe did a Wednesday service, and then played golf the rest of the week. I had no idea. Okay, I'm studying to be a pastor. And I go to seminary. And I get my degrees. I, go, I had a long time to get degrees. So yeah, no I had kidding. plenty of time for graduate studies and, and, and finish up, get this doctorate and all this in theology. I'm going to be a pastor. God's going to get me. I got people coming in prophesying over me. You know what I mean by prophesying? Oh, the Lord says you're not going to do all your time. Well, I did every single day <laughs> of my time, right? And I was mad for a while. When are you going to get me out? Well, it's about two years before I'm going to get out. Cynthia gets cancer. No. Yeah. And now I've gone through seminary. I'm at a different institution. I'm at Taft. I'm leading services. I'm preaching. I'm teaching. I'm counseling, doing all this stuff. And he gives my wife cancer. That's the way I viewed it. Uh -huh. Why are you doing that when I'm not there? Silence. And Cynthia's more worried about how I'm reacting to it, to her having to go through cancer surgery. Okay. That's, that's how it took well with her. I mean, <laughs> the, the uh -huh. spiritual I took went well with her. With me, I'm looking for what am I going to get out of this? And now you're doing something to my wife. And then my parents die. Really? And I'm saying, this couldn't wait till I got out. This couldn't wait two more years. So all this knowledge, all this stuff, all these things, and I'm livid, livid really? with, with him over this, this whole thing. I mean, I'm, this is not, oh, busted again, born again. No, that's not it at all. This is me in a, in a, in a, a what ought in my mind to be this fist fight with the almighty, right? <laughs> but he won't even talk to me. And she gets through the cancer treatments fine. Um, the, the prison lets me go home for my parents' funerals in chains. Uh, I get to speak there in chains. And I get taken back to prison. And I'm still questioning. What in the world? Mm. Why would you? This doesn't make sense to me. And so that was the final two years of my sentence before I was uh, released back into the world.
So that's probably way more than you wanted to know, but not at all. It's what happens. You you get Mike Savage on your show. He's going to start talking. So I, <laughs> I love it. If that's too much. Uh, you're, you're, that, an av- you're an avid storyteller, and I love it. That stories is what people relate to. All right. Well, we're going to switch gears a little bit because I want you to tell me about your book. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, that is a. <laughs> I should probably write a book about writing the book. To be honest with you. Uh, from the time I got out until the time I wrote the book, um, there was always somebody telling me, you need to write your story. You need to write your story. My probation officer, when I got out, said, you need to, you need to write your story. This is important. You should write your story. And I'm saying, I don't have time. You know, I got to go work. I, I don't have time for this. Couldn't get a job in a, in, a, in a church. So I'm working construction, all this stuff. And I'm not, my wife, you should write a book. The few friends that I have. You need to write a book. Kids, you need to write a book. And I'm not going to write the book. It hurts too much to think about that stuff. That's the reason I didn't write it. Right. So I'm. we move from California to Texas. Thank you, Jesus. We moved there. We got here. And I'm really feeling this push now. You need to write this book. People that I'm working with at the, at the colleges and universities, you really need to write a book. And so one day... I sat down in front of the computer and I said, okay, God, I'm working full time. I'm doing as best I can. Uh, You see that I don't have time to write the book. So if you want me to write the book, you're going to have to give me the time to do it and not by sending me back to prison, please. (laughs) A few weeks later, Hurricane Harvey hit where we live. Hit hard. Um, I mean, to the point where we had a lot of damage done to the house, you know, the roof, all the stuff, the fence. Um, and and the only way that I was going to be able to to get everything done, because Cynthia is still working full time, would be to to take time away from work to, to get everything fixed. And I'm still not putting two and two together. Okay, because contractors, this, that, all these contractors, uh, FEMA, Texas windstorm. Mm-hmm. So all these things are paperwork and they send people out to inspect and do this. And that. Well, here's the thing that I learned about contractors, Carol, is they don't show up on time. <laughs> all right. Dante should have had some place in hell, his levels of hell for contractors who don't show up, period. All right. And they didn't. They were late or they didn't show up. And so now I've got time. You know what I'm doing now? Now I'm sitting around doing nothing. And Cynthia said, maybe it's time to write the book. <laughs> So over the course of about three months, I sat down and I wrote probably 120,000 words, right? And just pouring my guts out, talking about, you know, how God really broke me. He did this. He did that. I'm trying to explain it in ways that it's in English. It's not, you know, like we're talking about Christianese, Uh trying to just get the point across. Here's what happened, folks. And I get to 120,000 words. Done. I'm finished. Now what? <clears throat> I have no idea what to do after that. So I have a couple of friends in self-publishing. They said, you need to get an editor. So I send it off to the editor. Editor says, oh, good story, uh, but it's too preachy, and you need to take a bunch of this stuff out. Let me show you where. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> two months later, I have completed the edits. I send it back, and it gets published. And the, <clears throat> that's how it came about. It, was, it, was not a, it wasn't a fluid process other than the writing. You know, you know how some people write mm-hmm. uh, with outlines? I, I write just, I sit down and I start writing and then I edit it after that, having no idea 
where it's going. I didn't know where we we're going to end. I mean, how do you end a biography? How do you end a memoir? Well, if it's a memoir, where do you end it? Shouldn't you be writing it just before you drop dead? I mean, is that, <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking for this spot and I found the spot and I said, okay, it's done. And so she's working with me on the exchange. It gets published and I figured, okay, that's it. Done. No more. I've, I've completed. Well, then I get invited on a podcast, right? And it's like, Hey, this is like talk radio. Yeah. Right. Only I don't, only I don't have to take phone calls. And so I kind of got caught up in that. I did a lot of podcasts and started a podcast with, with Cynthia and, uh, we, we had this brilliant idea. We'll just sit down. We'll start talking. Didn't work because hmm. as soon as I turned her microphone on her voice shot up three octaves and she didn't breathe very well. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. Slow, slow. We'll start inviting guests on. So we invited guests on. And just, it's kind of, you know, kind of blew up from there. But that's the type of thing that we do now. We're old enough where we've been through enough things that we can go through some tough stuff. Yeah, you know, like in church, oh, that brother's going to stab you in the back. Well, in prison, that's an entirely different meaning. And you know, kidding. It's not a metaphor. And so this whole approach to life now, part of it is fun as opposed to dreary, horrible, because we've been through dreary and horrible. We've done that. We've got the t-shirts for dreary and horrible, but now it's more of a fun life where we can, we can enjoy one another. I can continue to teach. I'll occasionally preach, but I, I'm really not a preacher, but I like teaching. So I'll teach and, and I'm working with a, a small college and university now that's working through some uh, things with accreditation. So I'm working for them, doing some things and I teach Bible studies and I'll teach I love teaching psychology because my second degree is in psychology. So I love teaching psychology, but you know, I really like teaching it at Christian schools. Those, those are my favorite teach, teach religion at secular schools and teach psychology to, to uh, the, the Christians. And it's just, they're frightened, you know, but they learn to grow <laughs> that renewing, renewing your mind is helpful to know how the mind works, isn't it? So that works. And so it's, it's really, it's a joyous time for us. We're, we're really we really enjoy being together, even having been apart for 15 years. How long have you, have, uh, you been home now? Six months. No, I'm kidding. Oh. I got out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was I shocked. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll go to do that when I'm, when I'm teaching cause, or preaching the, the pastor right. I introduced you in 15 years. <laughs> and I said, you know, I've been out for six months now. This really feels great. Now, you just see the big eyes go over. <laughs> no, I got out in 2007. Okay. So I've been out 14 okay. years. Did you ever go back to the prison and visit anybody? I wasn't allowed to visit, but I was allowed to go back uh, when I was in California. I was allowed to go back into the state system and and meet with with people, and that was uh, it was frightening when the door shut behind me and I heard the door lock because I'm not used to going into prison and getting out the same day. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those ooh, scary mm. things. But then the guys, you know, we just connected. I told him, look, I can say I understand what you're going through because here's why. And so there's this real conversation that takes place, you know, doing that. And then uh, they stopped doing it because somebody who was doing what I was doing is actually smuggling things into the to the guys. And so they stopped that program. And I have done it. Um, it's, it's it's not one of those things that I am feeling that I'm I'm drawn to. Uh, I think there's there's more that I can help with people understanding people like me, understanding my perspective. As a former prisoner, I think it can help educate churches, people that way, just anybody about what it's like to be in prison and, and know that you're guilty. 
you know, and I didn't meet very many innocent people, but I was guilty. Knew I was guilty. Knew I deserved it. Now, how do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? Good What's point. that like? Mm-hmm. So I think it's, I'm more value out here than I am in there. I can commiserate with the guys, but I mean, you're going to do your time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it. There's no, there's no way I can help you with that. But out here, it's one of those things where you really want to know about criminal justice. You really want to know what it's like there. You want to know what it's like to be beaten up by a guard. You really want to know what the the, the 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 hierarchy of people are in there. Yeah, I can tell you that. I can talk to you about that. I just think that's more of more value than me going back and saying, yeah, guys, it's tough in here. <laughs> Good point. And the last thing they want to hear, and, and I'll be honest, is there but for the grace of God go I. I just didn't get caught because I remember when guys came in and said that to me, I'm thinking, what, what are you saying? I'm, I'm mm-hmm. stupid. You know, you're smarter than me. Yeah. Or I know what you're going through when they didn't. All right. So I get the, the idea of that, but out here, I very seldom get asked. Can you tell me more? Can you explain to me more? Cause people really don't care is my impression. Get About the criminals off the street. Which part? About what it's like in prison or how okay. you can improve okay. it or, or what the okay. what the mindset, the perspective mm-hmm. of, of folks are. They just presume they know. And that's that's unfortunate. Wow. That's an unfortunate thing. Well, my final question to you today is one that I probably ask just about everybody who on this show who has gone through some pretty traumatic situations in their life. And that is in hindsight the great teacher of hindsight. How did you see, first of all, God's hand? Now we know when that happened precisely in prison and you know that's the day that you mark as the day that you came to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But looking back, taking a, you know, like a scope over your whole life, how did you see now that God called you much earlier in your life to do and go through what you went through to be who and what you are now? The day that he put Cynthia in my life. You know, people say they don't believe in love at first sight. Well, it happened to me. Okay, I'm, I see it. We're at a charity softball game uh, and, and, and I'm playing for the CBS team. She's there with some friends playing and she was on the same team and I saw her. She was just gorgeous. <laughs> I was like, just wow. Just fell in love with her and and made some snarky comment like, uh, girls can't play softball. You know, typical macho. And she said, hey, hey. And we struck up this little conversation, right? Well, I see God putting her in my life because had I not had her in my life and seen the faithfulness of her in my life, I'm not sure what else he could have used to change me. Mm. You follow? Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me just, can I just give you one last story? Absolutely. One last story. one last story. All right. So in prison, they have the thing called a commissary where you buy uh, little food items, you know, soap, stuff like that. But it's also where you go back in the day, back in when I was in, in prison, there was no collect phone calls. You had to have money on your inmate account and then you would transfer it to the phone. So you could have, you know, $20 on the phone and it may cost seven cents a minute. So when that, $20 is gone. You can't call anymore. So every week, Cynthia sent me $20 every week, put it on the phone and we could talk every night unless I was in solitary confinement. You don't get the phone. then. So every week get the $20. Okay. So my parents get sick and 
Cynthia and our, and our children move in with them to help take care of them. And plus to kind of ease the financial burdens on two households in California. So it's just one, right? And she's living with them. I call the first weekend she's there and I said, Hey, how's it going? She said, your parents are crazy. I'm, I, she said in a good way, not a bad way. <laughs> your parents are crazy. I said, well, yeah, you know, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Little jokes, you know, like that. And, of course. and, and, and I said, why would you say that? Well, you've known them our entire. She said, do you realize that they buy food before they pay bills? I said, and if there's not enough money left for the, for, for the bills, they, they don't get paid that month. And I said, yeah, it's they're children of the, of the Depre- Great Depression, of course. You're food, food first, right? That's the That's deal. That's right. That's how I was raised. Absolutely. Yeah. And for some reason, there was this little like tingling thing in the back of the head that I should pursue this a little bit more with her and she, she kept going on it's just amazing i can't believe they don't pay bills if they don't if they get food first then the bills all that. i said well hang on for a second you send me 20 dollars every week i said uh, and and you guys are eating and doing you guys are eating and no problems going on or anything like that i said so i don't really get where you're coming from and there's this silence this is this silence it's like, okay, push a little further. I said, you've never gone without food. You're sending me $20 every week. More silence. I said, have, is there times you've gone without food? She said, well, not that, no, the children had food, but sometimes there wasn't enough uh, for me. And so, yeah, I would send you the $20 and I just wouldn't eat until, you know, we were able to. to I said, what? You sent me money with, that you could have used to eat for, for a phone call? She said, yeah, it's more important for me to know that you're okay than to eat. You have to understand that. Mm. Wow. That's beautiful. Well, I didn't take it that way. Mm. I was furious mm-hmm. with God. I was furious with the chaplain. I was in seminary at the time. I was furious about that. Next morning, I storm into the chaplain's office. said, I quit. You can put me in the hole, but I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with God. It was seminary. I'm doing, and as soon as I got finished saying all the things that I was done with, he said, "Okay, sit down and let's talk." He said, "What happened?" So I told him. I told him what exactly what happened. And he says, "That's amazing." I said, "Amazing? Why would why would God have her suffer because of me? I don't get it." He says, well, "You really don't understand about Jesus suffering for you, do you? Because this is a prime example, Mike. A prime example." And I was mad with God for a few days, but we made up. Things got better. But that broke me. That was a, that, you, they say you, you hit rock bottom. Well, I've learned there's a lot of ledges on the way to rock bottom that you Good can point. land on. Mm-hmm. But that to me was my ledge. You know, the cancer was the real rock bottom. That was what really set me off. That would come a few years later. But that's, that's a story that gives you an idea of the type of things that, you know, I, I thought, I had this view of Christianity as being, okay, here's the rules. No swearing or minimal swearing. <laughs> uh, no drinking or minimal drink. All this stuff where you can have these little rules, but it's not about a rule at all. You know, and we right. talk about relationship. I mean, you know, most people that come in here, God is father. Well, what if they had a really rotten father? How are they going to view mm-hmm. them then? Mm-hmm. So we just, you know, I, it's probably too long of a story too, but I love the fact that this, now I can look at it in hindsight and don't have to experience it. Again. 
Well, I think we're going to have to have you back on the show because there's lots of stories here. And I love the stories. I love the uh, what you are stirring up even within myself. And because I know people are going to to relate to this. So I thank you for everything that, that you shared today. And I thank you for your story. I thank you and I trust that it will motivate others too to share their stories and to sh- and specifically to share your story and to buy your book and to share your book and to give it to people who may be struggling with something that happened in their own lives and wondering how how this could possibly turn out to be anything good i have a saying that i've used for many years and that is god knows the end of your story There's no surprises. He knew exactly from the moment you were conceived what you were going to go through, what was going to happen in your life, who was going to be part of your life. And even for this broadcast today, you being here is all part of our story. What we take from this and share with others is part of our own story. And ha- and having that influence from you and what you shared today is wonderful. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for, and give your wife a hug from all of us <laughs> because she deserves it. Yeah, look, she's the she's the one. I mean, the, I get asked every so, how'd you do so much time? I said, well, they locked the doors. You know, it was not like, <laughs> exactly. But, but they didn't lock the doors on her. You know, she could have gone at any time. So God was working us along parallel paths. Absolutely. Thanks again for letting me be on. And I thank you for being on Never, Ever, Ever Give Up Hope. Thank you for listening to Never, Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.